0: Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. There's nothing more beautiful than being on a on a lovely sunny day in fall in, yes. in New York City yeah, welcome. and especially when you're having a cup of coffee with a very interesting person and I am indeed joined with uh, Jamie Metzel today uh, he is also a futurist uh, he's a novelist uh, he's a geopolitical and biotech expert but the thing that I think probably is, is, is most interesting in many ways aside from the fact he's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council is that he writes science fiction novels on the yeah. side well
1: it's true it's true and he- it's you know my feeling is like you Mike I'm always thinking about where the world is heading. And we happen to live in this crazy time of exponential change. You know, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, if you're born somewhere, your life is kind of like your grandparents, kind of like your parents, your kid's life will be kind of like yours. When we think about how different our lives are than our parents' lives are and, and were, and our children and grandchildren, things are changing so rapidly that if you're not spending a lot of your time thinking about how technology is changing the world and how China is changing the world, you're actually missing something really, really big. And so that's why it's great to have podcasts like these to help people kind of get their minds around these big fundamental changes that are happening in, in the world around us.
0: I, I think that's very true. And, and it, we were talking about this before, uh, that in many ways it's easier exploring these things through fiction because when you present the reality of how fast the world's changing, it's fact, it, people it, get First they disbelieve you and then they actually believe you and get angry. (laughs) It's so funny,
1: so whenever you're giving a talk, and I know, Mike, you give a lot of talks, you get to see the faces of everybody in the audience, but they don't see each other's faces because if you're giving a good talk, um, they're looking at you. And so when I talk to people about where technology is and where it's going, I look out and everybody has that look, you know when you open the door to your dark home and the lights go on (laughs) and all of your friends are there and they yell surprise and you have those wide eyes and that open mouth. Everybody is looking that way. And then when I talk about what the implications are and how we're going to change the way we make babies, how we're going to, to genetically alter our offspring, how we're going to shift to a different evolutionary path. Uh, than we've been on for four billion years. You're absolutely right. People just look appalled. And I keep saying like, wait, 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 we're gonna cure and eliminate all these horrible genetic diseases that people have suffered terribly with for millennia. And there's all this great stuff. But once people start feeling this fear, it's almost too difficult to reach them. So you write science fiction as I do, or near-term science fiction. It kind of gets people to, to suspend that that fear because oh this isn't this world now, this is the world right. ten years from now. So I'm just gonna enter it, I'm not gonna judge. And then like you can kind of trick people and just say building a world, letting people occupy it, and then to understand not just that technology is good or bad, it's all of those things. And the, the core thing is what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a human being now?
0: And what does it mean to be a human being in this world that's changing so rapidly? One of the things I thought was quite curious was that a number of your protagonists and storylines are set in Kansas City. Yeah. And uh, I went to Kansas City for the first time uh, last year, and well, oh, that's so exciting. Where did you go? Uh, I ate, I ate a feathered barbecue. Mm-hmm, so I good. had a friend of mine who drove me around, and I actually felt like I was in a David Lynch movie because yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, or or something out of True Detective, because yeah. it, it's a city that feels like it was a major sort of um, industrial metropolis at one point in time, and and that time is, and the technology's moved right. on. But, but the kind of, the uh, the relics are still there.
1: The relics are very much there because Kansas City used to be the endpoint of the, the train that went to the East Coast. So as far as you could get would be Kansas City. So the, the cattle drives would come up from Texas, the cows would get to, to uh, Kansas City, right. um, where they would be killed and put on the trains, and then they would go to Chicago, um, or even live and put on the trains to go to Chicago. Then they'd be kind of turned into baloney or whatever, and then that would get, uh, sent on. And so Kansas City, we have unlimited space because it's the Midwest. Yeah. And so physical, like we're here in New York, every inch counts. In Kansas City, it's un- it's unlimited. And then when the stockyards closed... Um, when was re- that? Was it like mid-1800s or? Yeah No, it was later, like beginning of the of the 20th century. People forget it. You know, at the end of... I was listening to something the other day. Like at the end of um, uh, uh, the Second World War, I think there was something like three million mules that were in operation that were doing industrial functions in the United States. So that kind of agrarian kind of using animals to yeah. drive things, it lasted a lot longer than people think. And,
0: and it's, it's funny because it, it sort of feels like the apex of a, I guess, an industrial technology which sort of hit a dead end. And, yeah. And, and, and it was I, a
1: great technology. You know, it's funny now. Uh, there's all this talk about taking down the confederate monuments yeah and everybody is sitting on a horse because that was the thing like that's from right from that was, Roman the, te- that was the Tesla of the time yeah, exactly from Roman times until 100 years ago like that was the thing and if you like maybe if you were like a really cool guy you got like an awesome horse oh sorry you got an awesome horse and it is just so it's just how quickly things change
0: um, we'll, we'll come back a little bit to that and also yeah. to, to buy. Then we can we can just
1: dump the horse thing. I think we've exhausted that for our purposes.
0: <laughs> but I want to talk a little. You know, I, I gave a talk recently, and uh, and, and the, the senior exec asked, you know, what are the things that you're most frightened of? And, right. You know, I said I think the, the three biggest vectors of change are going to be geopolitics, um, inequality, and, and of course digital disruption. Right. Uh, and I know geopolitics is is something you think and talk and a lot. comment yeah. a lot about. So, given that we're we're at this very interesting moment in time and history, where things that we never imagined before that we'd have to worry about, like nuclear war, mm-hmm. are actually back on the table again, right? What, what is your reading of, of the of, of the North Korean situation and that sort of hotbed of right. of interests?
1: Well, let me let me answer that broadly and then focus on on North Korea broadly. What we are seeing right now, in my view, is the end, the beginning of the end of the post-war international order. Um, Because the first two world uh, world wars were in many ways the crisis of a world that had grown based on the Westphalian principles of sovereignty and nationalism. And because the post-war planners saw that as the problem, the post-war world was established based on ideas of shared... Sovereignty and multilateral, and, and, and multilateral institutions, and that's because of that we've had as uh, almost eight decades of the greatest growth the world has ever seen in history. And, and
0: actually, back then, the concept of America First was almost a derogatory expression.
1: Well, America First was this ultimate racism, this exact slogan of Charles Lindbergh America yeah. First, make America great again. That is in our history. And Roosevelt
0: was so against this, which, yes.
1: Well, it, yeah. all Americans should be against this because it's going back to a slogan among the darkest days of our history where it was all about exclusion. And you look at the growth of this country, all of the people who contributed, And people are talking about the greatest generation. We're going back to those old days. Well, who were the people, even in those days, who were the people who built this country? And and yes, it was the Chinese people who built the railroads and all these, uh, these different people but how did we even win the second world war like who were the scientists who made creating the atomic bomb possible those are the people the nazis you mean no on our side we had the atomic bomb huh? we had the atomic yeah, bomb but that's, that's why that's after we took the nazis
0: <laughs> no i'm saying
1: that's why we won and so these people are saying yeah. we, we need to go back to this great time when was that great time it was like What, before the Civil War? Like, was that the awesome time? Was it when we won the Second World War because we had a common purpose as a country and people of all different backgrounds fought together? We had these almost entirely Jewish scientists, Jewish European scientists who came to the United States and built the bomb that allowed us to defeat Japan. When was that? I
0: think great. it was sort this, of, this is the sort of great between time. June and October yeah. in 1969. <laughs> exactly. That's sort of, that was sort and they of were it. on drugs then. <laughs> this is the great time. Yeah. And that's
1: the sad thing is that this is the great time where we've rebuilt the world in many ways in our image. Yeah. Um, Asia has been revitalized. Europe has been revitalized. We should be doing a victory lap. It is, it is, than, it is
0: ironic that yeah. uh, you know, not only has the multilateral global system matured, even the... the the people that opposed it now want to uphold it. So yeah. even China <laughs> wants, to, wants well, to play Because ball.
1: everybody realizes what it was like when we didn't have that system. We know what happens in a world of unbridled uh, nationalism and fixed sovereignty. We have two world wars to prove it. Um, and so if we are the ones who are literally doing to ourselves what the Soviet Union was trying to do to us for decades, and we, we held that wall during the Cold War. Now we are de- we're, we're destroying, I know we didn't want to get too political, but we are in many ways destroying this magnificent edifice that our parents
0: and grandparents, and now even great-grandparents, built. Does this, it's, um, it's, does this system require a hegemon? Like if, if, if America doesn't want to play, does someone else have to step up in order for the multilateral system to work? The
1: answer is it doesn't require a hegemon, but you can't get to that new world from here. There's a quote by Antonio Gramsci that I like to use, which is, the old world is dying. Oh, sorry. The oh, I keep banging the table for listeners, and <laughs> Mike is telling me not to do it. Um, the uh, The quote is, the old world is dying, the new world has not yet emerged, and in the twilight, rise up monsters. (laughs) And basically, that's the situation that we're in. So the United States is primarily, very primarily responsible for the post-war international order. You could imagine a different type of order where the United States didn't have that role, but you can't get there by the United States stopping to play this role and saying, all right, who's next, because everybody else every other political culture has evolved and developed in a different context yeah. with a different set of expectations. And even the
0: decline of the British Empire happened about at the same time as the rise of the, the US. Uh, it did and we had a very close
1: relationship with them and we went, we went through a war that kind of made this change very clear and so by the time of even the late 1940s it was absolutely clear that the United the Kingdom wasn't going to be able to, to maintain the role that it, that it had. And so now I would, it would be terrible if we needed a destruction of so much of what we've built to date in order for everybody else to step in and say, all right, we can build a multi, or truly multilateral world to maintain this order. We just haven't had that. And that brings me to your question about, about North Korea. North Korea is directly probably the last remnant of the, the surrender structure of the Second World War in, in, uh, in 1945. And it's this, I mean, whether, whatever the right word is, Stalinists, uh, totalitarian, but it's in, very much in this old model of, um, of state control. And because of that, uh, North Korea needs to have this enemy, and the enemy primarily is us, but also Japan and, and, uh, and, and South Korea, But it's evolved in an ecosystem where it doesn't exist on its own. North Korea would not be there but for the support that it received in China, first in fighting the Korean War and creating the country, and especially since the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, giving uh, North Korea the lifeline of trade and aid that keeps the country uh, from collapse. And so while North Korea is behaving in my view very rationally by developing nuclear weapons if i was kim jong-un i would hate to be but if i was him and i was trying to make what's the most if my goal is regime survival what's the most rational cost-effective way to do it that's what he's doing because you i mean if libya had nuclear weapons nothing would have happened exactly ukraine the same Um, but when the president of the united states responds in kind to the threats and provocations of uh, North Korea's leader. That is really dangerous because North Korea is playing the same role, the United States is playing a different role, and as I said, the world ecosystem is based on America playing a responsible leading role in the, the international system. If America gives up that role because of this America first, because um, we're gutting the State Department, because we're telling our allies they can't rely on us and we're behaving in a way that forces them to come to that realization, that's extremely destabilizing. And that's why I, I for sure feel uh, that Kim Jong Un won this recent exchange with Donald well. Trump because. North Korea is stronger as a result and the United States is
0: weaker. I mean, in any negotiation, it's always a legitimate tactic to play the crazy person because then people spend so much time worrying about what you might do as opposed to their own position. But if you have two parties both playing the crazy person...
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, I think that the United States, as I said, has many responsibilities around the world. There are many countries that haven't, for example, developed nuclear weapons because they believe that the United States will defend them under our nuclear umbrella. And so it's not free to play crazy when you're the United States of America because, one, it may be true, and two, your allies will say, I guess we can't count on you. And that is exactly what we're seeing. So, Australia, Japan, uh, South Korea, everybody's saying, well, what does the world look like when we can't count which, which on you? The it's going to encourage more
0: proliferation, because, which is what we're going to see. Um, during the Cold War, uh, in some ways, although it was terrifying, the predictability of the of the people's positions essentially allowed them to, you know, to circumvent nuclear disaster because right. you know you you could you could break down these asymmetry right. of information by just having a, a hotline, right? You know, where you could actually call each other and just call the thing off.
1: Right. I guess now we have Twitter.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. But but I mean so I mean can you even well, model the dynamics of? Well, on that, the, that's the. I don't
1: want to call it good news. It's the. Good bad news. Um, So the bad news is North Korea is developing nuclear weapons. There's very little that the United States can do to stop them. The one thing that we can do is, and should do, is put a lot more pressure on China to rein in uh, in North Korea, but even then it's it's a tall order. But the good news is the North Koreans are rational, highly rational actors, and they are not suicidal. Their goal is regime survival. Right. So they, you know, I was on Fox last week and these people were saying oh, it's this huge victory. Um, Trump won and Kim Jong Un blinked um, because uh, they didn't attack Guam with uh, missiles. Right. Like I said, that's crazy. Why would they ever attack Guam with missiles? That would be courting their own destruction and their goal is survival. Yeah. And, and so I do think as terrible as it is and there's huge cost for North Korea having nuclear uh, weapons, I do think that we are going to back into a policy of containing North Korea like we contained the Soviet Union. Was there a continuous threat of nuclear Armageddon with the Soviet Union? Absolutely. Will there be that same threat with North Korea? Yes. Um, What's but, China's interest in this? Well, China has a binary interest in. either um, they can accept the existence of North Korea with all of its flaws and the North Korea-China relationship is terrible. They really hate each other. Um, with all of its laws because they feel like they would rather have even a hostile nuclear armed North Korea than Korean reunification under South Korean law allied, allied to uh, the United States. Or they can put enough pressure on the North Koreans to get North Korea um, to reverse its nuclear program, but that amount of pressure is to the point of total destabilization of North Korea. They need to say to North Koreans, Either you, you decommission your entire nuclear weapons program or we're going to cut off your food and oil and trade. And if they did that, if they were willing to do it, the North Koreans would come to the conclusion that they were safer without nuclear weapons than they are with. Do
0: you think China ultimately wants to see a, an authoritarian market economy?
1: They would, China would love for um, uh, North Korea to develop along China's lines. Right. And that, that would be a great, perfectly good uh, thing to do. The problem is um, the North Korean leadership doesn't want that because if they, um, if they go down that path, it requires a level of opening that just that won't be possible for their current totalitarian governance structure. Once people are empowered, it's almost too late for North Korea's leaders.
0: Let's take another strand of this. Um, you know, one of the, I think, fair criticisms of the um, geo, uh, the global system we live in today is the rise of um, globalist technocratic elites, right. um, both on the government side, but also the, the 1% as people worry about them, the right. rise of inequality. And I think this, in some ways, dovetails in an interesting way with what you've written about biotech and and, uh, and you know new gene technologies because we we can almost foresee a, not only a new class but almost a new breed of human beings yeah. who've got access to life extension technologies yep. Yep. ways of you know designing disease resistance into their own germline. Right.
1: Uh, it's true so it's the good news like all these things it's the good news and the bad news and the variable <laughs> is us right and so the good news is we have all these incredible technologies that are going to allow us to live longer, healthier, more robust lives to develop new kinds of capabilities and whether they're outlier human capabilities or capabilities that animals now have or capabilities that humans and animals don't have but we can kind of figure out using new combinations of, of natural or uh, synthetic genes. So that's could either be terrible if it's used for Island of Dr. Moreau stuff or it could be wonderful if it's used to eliminate disease and enhance um, human happiness um, and health. And but the bad news is, is that your health insurance won't cover it. <laughs> well, no, but, the, the, but then there's the question of how, how will we make decisions about the use of these technologies? And so, for example, you could imagine a, a scenario where only the wealthy had access. And so the wealthy, the children of the wealthy become more capable with each generation and it comes a point like Gattaca where non-genetically enhanced people just can't compete and then they become whatever they would uh, would become maybe even a different species over time or you could imagine a society or um, where people said, we're going to eliminate all of these genetic diseases and we're going to enhance human health and right now we're spending X trillions of dollars a year treating these diseases that will be eliminated what if we took part of that money and invested in spreading this technology so that nobody has these diseases and we'll all be better off and we'll all save. And I think that, that there's a very high likelihood that that could, could happen because if somebody is born with Huntington's disease, or something, it's, it's very expensive in most, almost all cases society foots that bill. So society should at least have an incentive to say, well, can we screen pre-implanted embryos to eliminate these kinds of terrible and, and deadly diseases. And that's, that's where you start, and then there'll be the possibility, well, where do you go from there? And it's, are people comfortable with screening out diseases? Probably yes. Are people comfortable with screening in things, in immunities to certain things like HIV, AIDS? You know, probably yes. Are people comfortable selecting kids with higher intelligence? Well, we don't know are people comfortable engineering people their children with new kinds of capabilities some will be and some won't be and then and, and in some country, some countries will allow it and some won't it's right? already happening in yeah. China There's an article in Nature this week um, about the explosion of use of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis in China so they're in IVF, they're screening embryos to screen out genetic diseases, and it's growing yeah. rapidly. Now they have in China, in one clinic, they have more PGD than, t-
0: than happening in the entire United Kingdom. Well, we've already seen in China and India, just with gender selection, Yeah. the, the impact that can have on sure. demographics. Yeah. It's terrifying.
1: Or great. Right. Yeah, I mean, terrifying if you're having only boys. Right. It's great if you're eliminating deadly diseases that are killing people before they're 10 years old.
0: You, you, you wonder I mean it's always easy to be frightened of new things but there's sort of this dangerous period where we don't actually know enough about some of these technologies where you, you wonder whether our you know our attempts to sort of clumsily edit things will lead to... You know, al- almost like what happened to the to the, you know the zas, you know yeah. where where you, where you you have a genetic line which yeah. becomes too pure and they right humili-
1: and and these are all very real and very important questions which is why we need to be having those conversations now because we will this technology will continue to develop at this incredibly rapid rate people will make choices and the question is how informed or uninformed will those be and how much will we use the values framework to help frame what those questions are and so that's why I think everybody I was saying in the beginning everybody needs to be a technologist everybody needs to be thinking about these issues because this really is about our our future not just as individuals but as a species
0: which of the countries do you think will end up either because of lax regulation or opportunism will will be more ahead of the United States in terms of CRISPR and genetic modification and biotech well so right now definitely china but do you think you also see places like thailand well you know it's
1: it's a a really it's an open question so right now the best science in the world by far is coming out of the united states and and all of these big innovations they all come out of of the united states but there's a real cultural difference and a societal difference and a governmental difference in where we go from uh from here and it could be that these technologies end up backfiring in some way, as, as you mentioned, and that the, that the countries that were more cautious in the beginning end up being the winners. And we see that now even with phone systems. Countries that had terrible phone systems um, can then go to advanced phone systems without having all of the, the problems that, that many of us have had along the way. Um, but it could also be that this technology is so revolutionary that the first um, adopters have a huge advantage. And that's my not my most recent novel, uh, Eternal Sonata, but before that, Genesis Code, was about exactly this. What do we do, um, what would the United States do if we learn that China has a secret genetic engineering program that would make it so that we couldn't compete with them in 20 or 30 years in science and math and engineering and business and, and, and other things? So definitely, China has identified Biotech as an area of particular, of special attention and focus and investment, and so I and there's as I mentioned there's a different culture in how to think about the role of engineering just across the board in life, whether well, it's environmental say, it, it, or family engineering. You
0: don't even need to, uh, you know, have CRISPR. Created clones to, um, to get Yao Ming, you, yeah, you know, to, to cause trouble. We just need to not defund the education system. Yes, yeah. no, no,
1: no. We we are the experts in shooting ourselves in the in, in, in the foot. Um, so definitely, coming back to your question about which countries, I think we don't know. But the countries that embrace this technology, but do it within a, a values framework, um, because if it won't take too many really bad experiences for people to get spooked and so it's like gene therapy is an example this, we're now experiencing the kind of the second um, peak of the wave of gene therapy but when the first one happened there was a, a child who very sadly died at the university of pennsylvania and so gene therapy was was pushed back so if there are too many errors that yeah. will push things back but i think that that, there, that this technology is very real. And we all have a conservative bias because we kind of think of life the way we grew up, not the way it could be or maybe even will be. Um, and so there's just an inherent conservatism in people which is well-founded. Um, but this technology is changing so rapidly. And you look at something like the applications of CRISPR gene editing. I mean, it went from, from something that people were using in yogurt yeah. To, to fundamentally having the potential to transform our species in in a very small number of years. Well,
0: life extension is a, probably one of the most socially changing, transformative yeah. applications of this. And yeah. you know, the search for eternal life goes all the way back to you know Chinese philosophers eating jade and sitting on the top of mountaintops. You know, yeah, like. yeah. The, so, yeah. one of the things that that I've always been fascinated with is, you know, what are the broader economics and social implications of of people living longer, because we're actually just not really, you know, everything from inheritance to, to the yeah. concentration of wealth. We're not really geared up for people to live beyond really a hundred. Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: we live in this world where everything is based on this kind of agricultural, you know, this you know, agricultural phase of being, and so there's yeah. a certain retirement age, and we're kind of sticking to it. But life is getting longer and longer, and it's been for the last 100 years. And They're you little... see in
0: Japan that the consequences yeah. of war where people live too long and don't yeah. give up their jobs.
1: Yes, but maybe we're... Th- so two points, I'll come back to that. Is this, so the last 100 years, we've extended life on average three months per year. Recently, because of, of sadly, because of, of the drug problems and in the United States. The United States has leveled, leveled out a little bit. Um, but that's going to continue and it's probably going to, to accelerate. So we're going to need to think differently about the life cycle than we've, than we've had. Certainly, I think it's great that people, people shouldn't give up their jobs if they love those jobs. But if we're having a problem of not having enough spaces for other people, we need to think differently about work. And there are things that right now we don't call work or maybe we don't value, like human interactions. Uh, like visiting relatives, all these kinds of things, but it could easily be, and I think it probably will be, that certain functions that today we see as incredibly complex and highly valued, and whether it's people who are great at abstract math, or uh, people who are really great at seeing patterns in, in financial numbers, or whatever, that those will all be commoditized skills, and we really won't value them for that much because No human will be able to compete with a computer, but it could be that there are things that are uniquely human, like love and empathy and poetry, um, that will value more. And there will be things that we don't call jobs, we call, oh, isn't that nice? And those things will be jobs, and there are things that we call jobs, and they won't be jobs. And the reason that's connected to the longevity issue is that as people live longer, like we're gonna need things for people to do, and that doesn't mean that everyone, every hundred-year-old, should be working at the Seven-Eleven. Like they, maybe there's all there's all sorts of things, but we can't stick with this. Do you agrarian think there'll be an Uber, an Uber for friends. You know, I think they already have it. It's called the Tinder. dating apps. It's exactly, exactly, for sure. But they must have. I don't know if it exists. Like people who are have like Friender. Or let's say you well, just want to have one conversation. I, I mean, in, in, in serious terms,
0: I mean, home care is a hugely growing yeah. industry.
1: Um, it's great. Yeah. But um, I think that there we have, one of the great things about the sharing economy is that we find all this stuff that's laying around, people's cars parked in their parking lot, in their garages, people's lawnmowers, people's you know, empty sofas, empty rooms in their houses, all these things. And we think, well, wow, that's an asset. How can we unlock that that asset? But I think we'll find that empathy and, and acquaintanceship and other things are real assets. And you know, someone like you, someone like me, I have kind of a lot of eclectic interests. Like I might want to say, like you know, I'm really thinking a lot about Mongolia today. And I you know I know the you know, the people I know who know Mongolia, but I bet there's like 20 other people. I guess that's what Meetup is. And let's like let's all get together, or let's I'm going to pay somebody to come and do a three-hour Mongolian lesson. It's just, there's all this capacity. And what is commerce is just people paying for stuff. Yeah. I think we're gonna pay for more
0: stuff. Well, listen, I think we could talk for hours about some of the yes. potential of all of this. Um, but this is the end of the show and oh. I'm very glad to have you on it. My pleasure, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Between Worlds, for more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.